Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. All right, y'all, we're wrapping up seminar 10 tonight. And I want to start with some basic review, kind of like where we've been, what we've got under our belts at this point. And at any point in what's happening tonight, I want you to feel completely free to just chime in and say, pause, can you please review that concept or, or whatever? We've already been over a lot of this stuff multiple times, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time rehearsing it. I'm just going to prod it out. And as always, um, with uh, diagrams as we go. So here's the basic riff where this seminar starts. The question of anxiety is a question of desire. That's why we've spent just as much, if not more time, addressing Lacan's notion of desire as we have anxiety. And the study of desire is not a psychology. You'll recall. It's an erotology, where the key theme here is not the psyche, but the body. Eros, of course, being the origin of the word erotic. The study of anxiety is a study of desire. And the study of desire is not a psychology, but an erotology instead, because it deals with eros, with bodies. And that is the central theme when it comes to anxiety. It's about desirous bodies encountering each other and demanding some sort of a bodily response or activation. Now, when we first got into desire, we talked about need, demand, and desire, and about how desire is demand minus need. What's left of demand after need has been met. We talked about how this results in a split subject using some early graphs of desire. We also came up with some fuzzy math to help us remember this. One plus one equals three. And the reason why we say one plus one equals three is because the split subject is not just comprised of an embodied, animalistic, biomaterial self, it's also comprised of a disembodied, abstract, sociolinguistified self. There's the you in your skin, and then there's the you on the screen underneath your image right now at the level of your name. Now, one plus one equals three because there's always a third element. The split subject always has a third element, and that third element is the bar that you see racing across the S. That third element is the minimum irreducible distance that has to be maintained between your bioanimalistic self and your sociolinguistified self in order for these two to remain distinct. That gap, that bar, is signaled in Lacanian algebra with little italicized A. One plus one equals three because the split subject always has a cut or a gap 
that has been introduced into them. And we symbolize that gap with this little a. We've come at this a couple other ways as well. We had, for instance, a very simple math problem, a division problem, where the mythical subject of pure need is divided by capital A. And what is produced, if you just draw a simple mathematical equation, you've seen this before, it's also posted on our Instagram, is a split subject remainder A. Split subject dot A is how we signaled it in our time together. A is a remainder, a corporal leftover of the process known as castration. And we'll review that again here in a minute. We also talked about desire in terms of its for, of, and as structure. First and foremost, desire is always desire for another body, somebody else, their care, their affection, their attention. In order to have our desire for another met though, we learned very early on to approximate the desire of the person we hope to provide us with care. We guess what they want and then identify with that in hopes of better securing their affection. This is desire of in order to satisfy desire for. And the process that we talked about here is one in which in the final analysis, we wind up learning how to desire as another. We have to desire as another in order to get our desire for another met. And the example of this, that you're not gonna be surprised to hear me repeat again, is getting dressed in front of a mirror. Looking in the mirror is one of the things that everybody on this call has done today. There are a lot of other things that some of us have done and others haven't. Looking in a mirror though, I guarantee everybody on this call has done it at least once, probably multiple times today. When you look at yourself in the mirror, what you are doing is you are examining yourself from another person's point of view as you imagine it. You're imagining how the little other, here an imaginary encapsulation of the big other, sees you. And the basic question in front of the mirror is, Am I attractive? Which is to say, will I attract the affections and the care and the attention, the recognition that I seek from this other person? Do I look agreeable enough to have my desire for them met? Now you'll know, in order to answer that question, you have to look at yourself from their point of view. And that's what the mirror provides. That is desire as. And then you look at the wardrobe that you're choosing. You're choosing clothes that you think will make yourself appear agreeable and whose affection you want to attract. That is desire of because you're approximating what you think they're into when you choose your outfit. And in this unique combination of dressing in a way that you think will make yourself appealing and then viewing yourself in this clothing to test whether you've achieved your goal desire of and desire as you eventually ideally for better and for worse get your desire for another person met 
This is another way that we came at desire. And I spend a few minutes with it because it was also how we transitioned to this imaginary triangle that was all premised on the desire of the maternal figure or function. Remember, it doesn't have to be your bio mom, it doesn't even have to be a female. What we're looking for here is somebody who performs a certain function for the child, usually that of a primary caregiver. Here, what we see is the child desiring attention from the primary caregiver, but having to approximate and imagine what else the primary caregiver likes to guarantee that desire getting met. What they imagine the primary caregiver liking, we have symbolized by the lowercase fee, the imaginary phallus or the imaginary object. Then we introduced this fourth element, not the child, not the maternal figure, and not the imaginary phallus, but this fourth element that transforms the imaginary triangle into a symbolic square. This is the paternal function, the name of the father, the no of the father, the prohibitive gesture that cuts in to that relationship between the child and the maternal figure to say that the maternal figure does not have the phallus and that the child cannot be it for her. What that does is it negates the phallus. It places it under erasure. It introduces a cut. It is the act of cutting in that then produces the opening that we designate with little a. So if we're going to put this on our board here, it's going to look something like this. All right, holler back because I can't see you now. Can you see the board here in front of you? I need a voice. Are you drawing? I don't see any. I see just a white screen space. I don't know. It just loaded. I can see your Skype screen. Now, can you see the blackboard? It's still thinking. Oh, Lord. All right, let me stop this and then we'll try it again. Because I do think it's helpful to have some of the symbols popping for us and in front of us to be seen. All right, how yeah. about now? Yeah, now we got it. Okay, great. So the imaginary triangle that we're talking about here was this thing. And then we introduced this symbolic element represented by the paternal function. And what I'm trying to get at now is to remind you how this works, how this looks mathematically. Imaginary phallus is then placed under erasure. And this yields is an opening that we designate with little a. And in order to help us remember this, we've come up with another simple math problem. One, minus one 
equals zero. And I'm not just messing with this to remind you that the one here is symbolized by the phallus, which of course refers to that biological one that sometimes dangles between two legs. And then having this very one subtracted to give us a symbol for nothing, which is exactly what little a is, a symbol for a place where nothing appears. This is why Lacan in this seminar has made so much of zero. There is a lot of zero talk in here. It's tempting to think that this is fundamentally a seminar about the big other, capital O. But what Lacan is also careful to point out a couple times in here is that don't confuse that big O with its relative zero. Oftentimes he's talking about the zero here. Now what I want to emphasize here while we've got the board in front of us is something else. This is something we haven't discussed, but something I want to suggest here in our final session together. The cause of desire we have talked about as object A, this element right here, this opening. But what I would like to suggest here is that the cause of desire is in fact a contracted moment that includes the cutting in of the paternal function and the resulting opening that's produced as along the way. So here's one way to think about it. There's the incision and then there is the wound. There's the cutting as an act, and then there's the opening of the human form that is resulting from this. These two elements together, these two moments, mark a contracted event, a structure, if you will, that I would like to suggest is the cause of desire. And in fact, one of the things that we have discussed in symbolizing desire is that it looks something like this. When the imaginary structure of castration gives way to the highly symbolized designator for something that resists symbolization itself this cause of desire. When the cut meets the opening, you now have a cause of desire, but it's a contracted multi-part moment, I'd like to suggest. Which brings us to another point that I wanna make with y'all. What we're talking about here is not objectivity, but instead what Lacan calls objectality. It's another great move that's happening in 10 that we've talked about here. Objectivity has to do with objects, with the field of stuff, the couch in the room, the painting on the wall. Objectality has to do not with stuff, but with causes. It's about 
causality. And if you want some ways to sum this up, objectivity is about objects and objectality is about openings. And Lacan's point here is that modern science is fascinated by objectivity, obsessively, almost even psychotically intrigued in a delusional way by stuff, by objects. Lacan's point is psychoanalysis does it one better because it focuses on the conditions of possibility for something like an object to appear. So if the object is a coffee mug, what Lacan is going to talk about are the divisions and the differences, the differential relationship between the coffee mug and the wall behind it that allow the coffee mug to be singled out as an object to be studied. Now that differential relationship also comports with our fuzzy math. One plus one equals three. The cup plus the wall and then the gap between that allows them to exist and to be studied by modern science as two distinct objects. If there were not a gap between them, an opening between them, cup and wall would merge with each other. The field of objects would slip back into something that looks a little bit more like the here and now of the all in the process of becoming that Lacan talks about in the 50s. So what we get when we focus on the cause of desire, the cut of the paternal function and the resulting opening in which a child can pursue their own interests and enjoy a little bit of breathing room is not objectivity. What you choose to focus your desire on, the objects you choose to consume, to purchase, to fill your closet with, is not of interest to Lacan. He is interested in the object cause of your desire for that stuff. What is the experience of lack that led you into that consumer moment? What did you feel like you were missing that led you to that purchase? You see, there are many things, remember, that we lack but that we don't experience as loss, right? You don't have a tail, but you don't wake up every morning and experience that lack. Lack is an experience. It's something that has to be undergone, which is why you have industries like advertising, departments of marketing in big corporations and small. They are charged with the task of producing and manufacturing, distributing the experience of lack. You didn't know you needed a new iPhone until you saw that billboard. You didn't know what you were missing until it was thrown up and displayed to you there in traffic as you pass through the dead zone where your current phone seems to putter out. The cause of desire is always an opening that we experience as fillable, 
in need of filling. The study of this is called objectality, Lacan says. It's the study of causes, not the study of objects. Which brings us to anxiety. When anxiety happens, something is made to appear in that opening that is the cause of desire. Something is made to appear in the place of nothing. Where nothing was, something is now made to appear. Where there was an opening and a gap, some breathing room, some distance between the emergent desires of the child and the devouring desires of the maternal figure. Now something is called in and that gap and that opening closes and it's filled not with an object of your desire. And here's the tricky part, but with someone else's desire. Someone shows up with a bigger desire than yours and says, and you know what I want? I want that gap, that one that you cherish. This is the parent that shows up on a pissed off day and takes your fucking bedroom door off the hinges. There will be no gap. And you're like stunned, not just because the door is not on its hinges, but because it's fucking gone. Dad, what did you do with the door? Like, it's not just missing and out of place, it's gone. It's completely gone. And as a result, the gap can't be returned. The barrier can't be reestablished. Anxiety is what happens when something is made to appear where otherwise nothing would be allowed to exist. Now, what is it that is made to appear here? in what I still believe to be some of the most important pages of this seminar, pages 45 and 46. What Lacan tells us here is that the desirous other wants me to display, to signal, to signify for them that I lack. And not just in order to close my object day, not just in order to, to fill that gap. It's something else. They actually want me to show up as castrated. That's what they want. They don't just want my opening. They want me to reenact the cut that produced it. They don't just wanna see the scar. They wanna hear one more time how you sustained the wound. That signal that is made to appear in the opening that is the cause of your desire is a signal of your castration. And we represent that by the parens minus phi. That's the sign that they want to see again. So when we symbolize anxiety, I'm going to share again this screen. What we see is something different. Here is the cause of desire. Where the cut of the paternal function results in the opening of object A. 
when anxiety strikes, we see something different. Anxiety is what happens when the A is marched back to the act that produced it. It's a reversal of the process of desire. This is how anxiety assaults desire. It takes the object cause of your desire and says, I'm not just gonna, I'm not only going to operate on this, I want you to show me this part of it too. Tell me and show me again how this occurred for you. Show me your castration. Signal for me that you are castrated. Now, this was the example that also got us into sadism and masochism. You'll recall here, when God in Ecclesiastes commands enjoyment of life, of job, of work, of life. It's in order for us to fail. We cannot enjoy all of these things because we are castrated and yet we are commanded to enjoy. And when we try to enjoy unheeded, unbiased, sometimes in search of this, drug-addled experience of limitlessness that we all somehow seek, whether it's in music, in spirituality, in sex, in drugs, rock and roll. You just keep going down the list of things that are supposed to put us outside ourselves, ecstatic experiences. In each of these cases, you have to ask yourself, what we're actually seeing. And why so often these experiences crash against the rocks of castration. We cannot enjoy as Ecclesiastes commands, which is why God is a sadist. Because what God is getting off on in that moment is seeing just how poorly we are able to follow that command. And when you stumble, when your hope for ecstatic experience smashes against the rocks of castration, the resulting shipwreck is that signal. That's the signal of your castration that the sadist seeks. It's not enough for you to want to enjoy you have to want to enjoy, try to enjoy, and fail to enjoy. It's because you can't love your partner and enjoy them every single day that God commands you to. Do you see? The commandment is issued in a sadistic fashion because what God wants to see, according to Lacan, is that we are unable to enjoy the way that we are commanded to do. And that visuality of it, showing up as castrated, as a shipwrecked motherfucker, is exactly why God is sadistic, because that is a highly anxious 
position to be in. What the big other as desirous other lacks is a signal of my castration. That's the bottom line here. This is why Lacan talks about a lack of lack. Something is made to appear where lack used to be, and as a result, lack is now out of the picture. There is no more breathing room, because now you're caught up with the struggle and the failure, predominantly, to enjoy. This is in part why we've symbolized anxiety as we have in here with the following formula. The desire of the subject as caused by this opening known as object A is gobbled up and displaced by the desire of something bigger, larger. And again, recall the praying mantis. Let's pause there for some questions. Tell me where you're at and let me know what I can clarify, if anything. I'm going to try and keep an eye on the chat here so you can post stuff there as well and I think I'll be able to keep track of it. All right, if you're good, I'm good. I have a question real quick. Yeah, go ahead. I was talking to myself for like a good minute there, um, but now I'm muted. So, um, so I'm curious about we're talking about openings, right? I'm curious if you would say there's sort of a dialectic between openings and closings um, in, in such a way where perhaps not necessarily that we're filling these openings, but they close on occasions or something like that. Yeah, and if you think about this in terms of balloons, um, it would have to be a closure that leaves a trace. So it's not just a closure of an opening that would produce a seamless result, but a closure that would look like an opening that's been plugged where you can see the lines around it. And in that case, Lacan would say, yeah, that's 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 what we're talking about. So closures leave traces, just like cuts result in openings. That's partly why he's messing around with cause and effect in the readings for tonight. He's really trying to get after cause and effect because he wants to have this really robust theory of objectality, the study of causes and openings. But yeah, what what would be happening in this dialectic of desire and anxiety, if we could call it that? And I think that we can. In fact, I think one of the most profound things we can say at this point is that anxiety must be passed through 
for desire to realize itself at the level of the drive. That's why we have this table where desire is here, anxiety is the median element, and jouissance is up here. So if you think about this, let me throw the screen up again. If you think about desire in this way, so we have this table, right? Classic table from this seminar. This is also the table that gave us the like vortex spiral thing that we were messing with in our fifth lecture. You have desire, anxiety, and jouissance. Initially, I thought this table was kind of bogus, but after working with it for a while, I think it's actually pretty productive if you read its flow like this. Now, I'm not gonna rehearse all of the things that we attribute here, the need, demand, desire, and I'm not gonna rehearse the whole swirl again unless you want me to, but I think that's pretty clearly expressed. What's important here is that at the level of desire, we see this movement. At the level of anxiety, I've told you that the movement is reversed. From having a cause of our desire that is an opening, anxiety says, tell me how you got that cut again. Let's talk about how you're castrated. Show me that. I want to see that. When Lacan says that jouissance must be refused in order to be attained on the inverse scale of the law of desire, this is at the end of his essay on the subversion of the subject, this is in part what he means. This green arrow here is the law of desire. In order to arrive at J1, at jouissance, there's this kind of, I put quotation marks around here because this isn't actually jouissance. Jouissance is an effect structure, an opportunity structure produced by the subject's integration into the symbolic. What was before that integration up here, the subject of pure need and a whole big other, was not jouissance. It was the here and now of the all in the process of becoming that again Lacan talks about in the 1950s. But in order for this desire anxiety dialectic to play out, if we're working this, here's A, here's B, and here's the sublation in jouissance, what we see is a reclamation of the very process at desire. Do you see how this looks dialectical? but with a hitch, except at the level of the drive. So what's happening down here at the level of desire is renewed 
by this process of passing through anxiety at the level of the drive. So we're going to spend some time talking about this. This is in part also why as we were discussing this matter last time, I asked you to pay close attention to Lacan's use of the word wellhead when he says that anxiety is the wellhead for jouissance. And you'll recall the use of wellhead made sense there because desire was illustrated by nursing, anxiety was illustrated by vampirism, and vampirism is here the wellhead for a certain type of enjoyment. So remember, the nursling desires milk, you could say, to the extent that you could assign desire to a nursling. At the level of vampirism and the anxieties, cultural and otherwise, that surround it, what you see is a passing over, not into more milk, but this is after milk has run out. Now, if it's a desire for anything, it's a desire to drain the lifeblood, the very source that would be able to produce more milk to satisfy future nursling desires. The vampire isn't satisfied to take a bit from mama. The vampire wants to take it all from mama. What Lacan is trying to signal here is that the passage from desire to anxiety at the level of the oral drive in the case of nursing, desire is happening where, for a breast that is full of milk and always renews its supply. Anxiety is anxiety around the fear that the breast will eventually dry up and there won't be any milk left. And vampirism comes in as an opportunity to take something else, another life force, in this case, blood. All of this metaphorically gives Lacan this idea to say that anxiety is a wellhead for jouissance, for something more extreme. Nursling, milk, vampire blood, and then we get this wellhead. This is what we're after tonight. This is what he's after at the end of this seminar. What comes next? What is outside anxiety? What is beyond anxiety? It is a resurgence of the formula of desire here represented for you, except at the level of the drive. And I think, yes, you could read this as a dialectical movement. Is that clear? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's awful. Um, I guess I understand. So that for the for the the table that you sort of charted out, you have the same two terms. They sort of contradict each other in the next um, uh, in the next uh, articulation of them within anxiety, and then you have the same two terms in the same place as desire and jouissance. I'm still curious how that plays out? Is Juissant sort of the intractable contradiction of desire in that sense? No. at the operating at the level of the drive is a partial satisfaction of desire. 
You see, the thing with desire is that it can't get no satisfaction. It's ever moving, restless. It cannot be sated. At the level of the drive, it can. But only in moments and only partially, which is why in part the drive has a repetitive cycle. You don't just smoke one cigarette and throw the pack away. You don't just have one drink and then leave the beer on the counter. You see where I'm going with this, right? You don't just masturbate once and then be like, cool, did that, what's next for life? And similarly, in the event of masturbation, you don't just touch it once. It's the repetitive movement that allows for the drive to operate. And it's repetitive in part because the satisfaction of desire that it provides is partial, incomplete. We'll come to that. It's absolutely on our horizon. One more step in between. But before we take it, questions, comments, things I can clarify so far. You're good, I'm good. Just a maybe self-evident based on what you're saying, but so if anxiety is, a, is if anxiety suggests a beyond anxiety, then is anxiety a universal at that point? Is it like the depressive position? Is that like a, is it being posed as a necessary universal that we all must go through? Oh man, that's a great question because I hear different things from Lacanians on this point. So, and you, you can hear this too through some different forms of analytic technique where they talk about the patient needing to go through an anxious moment with the analyst. That anxiety is kind of like this moment that has to happen. And I read Lacan several times in this seminar as kind of saying that, as suggesting that this is a passage, a rite of passage on the way to the end of analysis. That in order to get beyond desire, you have to confront anxiety. Which means you have to have this encounter with a fucking praying mantis. And the key thing here is, remember, the praying mantis example, the sadistic god example, the key variable here for anxiety is you feel that you are caught up or implicated in the desire of the big other but you don't know what you are for that desire. So the praying mantis example, you know what she does when she wants to fuck, but you don't know whether you're about to get fucked and thus killed or just passed on by. Because if you're wearing the male mask and this desirous praying mantis shows up, you're about to be fuck killed. If, however, you're wearing the female mask, she's just gonna pass right by. Anxiety is the not knowing which mask you're wearing. 
And Lacan's point is that it's oftentimes so excruciating that the beyond of anxiety becomes an acceptance of destruction. He says people would almost rather assume that they're wearing the male mask and about to be fuck killed than deal with the not knowing, even though it's the not knowing that preserves the possibility that you might just get a pass from that praying mantis. Anxiety is that painful. And you may also recall other places and other techniques that suggest, and hell, you know what? I bet half the people on this call see this all the time in the first couple of sessions when they meet with a new patient. They show up and they're trying to figure you out. What do you want from me? And they may even put it like that. What do you want from me? I've come here, I, I'm telling you what's on my mind and you're ignoring me. You're not, aren't you gonna write any of this down? Like, isn't this the shit you want me to say? Don't you wanna hear from me that X, Y, and Z? That what do you want from me moment in the early stages of an analysis is kind of like anxiety. I know you want something and I know that you want it from me because we're the only two people in this room, but I have no idea what I am for that desire. So why don't you just fucking tell me? You know what's wrong with me and you know what you want, so why don't you just come out and tell me? And if we wanna universalize it further, we might also read this into interpersonal relationships, intimate relationships, where the conversation, argument, however you wanna call it, devolves into what do you fucking want from me? You told me to do this, I did that. What the fuck do you want from me? You're still unhappy. I did what you said. This is what you told me to do. What the fuck do you want from me? The true answer to that question, as we learn in the subversion of the subject essay, is I don't know. I don't know what I want from you. My desire is as opaque to me as yours is to you. And that's almost a scarier place to be. Because remember, the neurotic is gonna be somebody who says, oh, come on, big other. I know you know deep down what it is you want. So let's just come out with it. Here, the enigma of desire, the obscurity of one's relationship to the object cause of their longing is completely avoided and displaced at the level of the demand. Enough of your desire tell me what you want, issue a demand. The neurotic, rather than deal with the enigmas of the other's desire, will do everything they can to press the other to deliver a demand instead. And you'll recall, this is also something that comes up early in the seminar. Lacan says though, the subject can push the big other from desire to demand, issue a demand, tell me what you want, tell me what you want, only so many times before they reach the bottom of the barrel of demand, the D zero, as Lacan refers to it, at which point the big other can only say what the neurotic hoped the big other wouldn't say, which is, 
show me you're castrated. You want to know what I want from you? You want to know what I want you to do for me? I want you to tell me the story of your castration one more time. So the great horror that the pervert embraces in the graph of desire when they turn from fantasy up to a signal of the lack of the big other is also what the neurotic tries to avoid when they turn left out of fantasy, if you're looking at the graph of desire, and back down into a world where the big other has all the answers here at the level of the demand. So if you look at the graph of desire, this is exactly what you see. It's in part how we can read this. Here's desire over here. Here's fantasy. When the cookie of fantasy starts to crumble, the subject has two options. The pervert fully embraces any signal that the other lacks and is like, let me plug that hole for you. I'm the plug for your hole. The pervert is very quickly going to make this move. This is the move, however, that horrifies the neurotic. They would much rather pass from here back down into a world where the other has all the answers. You know this world, you've been there. This is the recursive cycle of demand that Lacan talks about. The neurotic endeavors to try and stave off what deep down we all know the big desirous other actually wants. Show me. Show me that you're castrated. I don't just want the cause of your desire. I want you to signal to me the cut that opened that cause. Show me the stumble. Show me your fall. And there's a simple answer to the question of why this is so difficult for the neurotic. The neurotic is somebody who has a strong ego. Unfortunately, there are techniques out there that want to make that ego even stronger, which is why Lacan is so down on ego psychology in his day. The ego for Lacan is something to be hacked back, cut through, ignored, fucked with. That's not what the ego wants. What the ego wants is to be a subject, whole, complete, self-sufficient, in control. I'm the ego. What the ego papers over with this gesture is the fact that they are not a subject, but in fact, an object. That they are not autonomous, but in fact, heteronymous. That, in other words, they are not these self-sufficient, independent, coherent beings, but instead split subjects. What the ego papers over is split subjectivity. And the cause of split subjectivity is castration. That's why Lacan says 
that in fits of anxiety, what is made to appear where the object cause of our desire used to be is a signal of our castration. And it's difficult for the ego to show up like that because that is precisely what the ego works so hard to ignore about itself. Now, this is not a lecture on early to mid 50s Lacan where he's really working up a theory of the ego. The best riff on this for my money, you can delve into the first two seminars. They're great, there's a lot of good stuff in there. But his manifesto on psychoanalysis, the function and the field of speech and language in psychoanalysis from the mid 50s, that's the essay to read. If you're looking for that summer read and you really just wanna know at root what Lacan is doing with psychoanalysis, it's all right there in what we now know as the manifesto for Lacanian psychoanalysis. The field and the function of speech and language in psychoanalysis from the mid 50s. In there, you get terrific riffs on how the ego operates, why it's so fragile, all the traps that occur in analysis when the analyzan shows up and asks you to validate their ego in more than one way. That's a topic for another day. And if we wanted to do a whole series where we're just reading key essays in a Cree, we can do it. Now, Bruce Fink has done a great job of this. You can read great essayistic commentaries on what Lacan is doing in some of these key moments in his writings in a Cree. Um, one of the things that I've been doing, as some of you know, is delivering a series of lectures around on minor essays in a Cree. The major ones have been covered, but a lot of the minor essays, there's still some weird shit happening in there. People don't talk about it. People don't read them. People read the biggies and then they dip. One of the biggies that's definitely worth the read is this essay from the 50s, this manifesto where he works out the ego. So I'll leave that there as summer reading for you. Uh, but just to know that this regressive cycle of demand is pursued by the ego function, which the neurotic subject has in spades. That was another great question. I see in the comments here, David says, not universal cause, the psychotic doesn't experience the psychotic what the other wants delusionally. Kyle, mm. that one's directed at you if you're looking at the comments. I saw that. I just didn't have the du dual mental capacity to track with you and figure out what the fuck to make of that. <laughs> make of that. Um, I'm yeah. not sure. Um, when you say not universal cause, is cause here short for because? Or are you talking about causality? Short for because I'm reading it, but I want to be clear. Because, yeah. Okay. So anxiety being not universal to the psychotic because they don't have to grapple with desire. Is that reason? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, but here's the thing. 
I saw a guy on the corner the other day. So I live in downtown San Francisco, the Mission District. There's all kinds of crazy shit going on here. And the homelessness stuff is off the charts. Mental health issues are off the charts. The substance abuse is off the charts. I saw a guy the other day standing on the corner in a bathrobe, clearly struggling, shoeless. But what he was struggling with fundamentally was a newspaper. It's been extremely windy in the Bay Area. And as I'm riding by this guy, I get caught up the lights. So I'm like, you know, giving him an eye. I want to see what's going on. He's got this newspaper and he's trying to read it ostensibly. And the wind keeps whipping it. And so he uses the wind to fold the newspaper. And then he holds it up like a flag and lets the wind kind of flap it along. And then he chops it with his hand to produce another fold in the newspaper. And it was almost like he was struggling to fold this newspaper against the wind and moving in a kind of slow motion fashion, the likes of which I've only ever experienced in a nightmare that we often refer to as an anxiety dream, where I'm trying to get somewhere and I can't get there. I'm trying to walk down the stairs and I'm stumbling. Now what Lacan's gonna say is, all dreams, especially nightmares, are going to have these elements of bodily fragmentation because that's where we all started. Deep down, we know we are still fragmented bodies looking in the mirror, discombobulated as we were at the age of six months. Deep down, we are not only split subjects, but fragmented bodies, just a pile of parts that are relatively incoherent. And Lacan says, the truth of this appears all the time at the level of the nightmare. The nightmare is one usually in which your body is falling apart. Your world is falling apart. Your motor skills are dissolving. What I saw in the case of this person who struck me on surface as psychotic was that they were living an anxiety dream. It wasn't just like it happened last night and now we're back to reality. It's like every fucking day of this guy's life, I imagine, is that anxiety dream. He lives that anxiety dream. Now, can we call it technically anxiety? I don't know. But that experience of bodily discombobulation that we usually refer to as an anxiety dream, not being able to get somewhere, impediments of every sort, is one that it would seem accessible to the psychotic. But let's pause on that. We still got ground to cover tonight. And I want to also let you know that I have a whole series of lectures that are being transcribed right now on seminar three on the psychoses. They're going to be posted on YouTube soon. So you can read Lacan's seminal work on psychosis. And if you need help along the way, it's all tagged by chapter. So if you read a difficult chapter, you can go to YouTube, click on ideally, click on the lecture and have some guidance through that chapter. I'm not saying it's gonna be good guidance, but I'm saying it's gonna be there. So hold off on the psychosis stuff. I know you all are interested in that. Um, I promise I'll deliver some lectures and I'll post them for you so you can watch them. And eventually we'll have some transcripts out as well to circulate. I haven't looked at the transcripts yet. I need to still determine how significantly a pile of shit they are before I, I, I put them on the interweb. You're right, though, 
um, Oliver, that castration is a precondition for anxiety. And the psychotic utterly rejects castration. Yeah, the name of the father is um, almost perfectly foreclosed by the psychotic. I see David's got one more typing up here. I see now you're coming back to this point. Um, yeah, that's the thing. Trevor does know what God wants from him. He knows he's God's wife. He knows that God wants to fucking left, right, and sideways. He knows this. Now, I don't know if we could say that it's knowledge. Because he's operating in the field of He has knowledge of what the other wants. What I know about psychosis from Lacan and knowledge is that it really turns more on, on the privacy of that knowledge. The truth of the psychotic's knowledge, the vitality and viability of what they quote know is propped up by the fact that only they get to know it. So example, the psychotic hears a voice in their head. They know that you don't hear that voice, but they do. And you can see this all the time walking down the street. Motherfucker be having a moment on the corner and you walk by looking half civilized and they quiet, you know, maybe even button up a shirt and be like, hello. And then as soon as you round the corner, you hear them right back getting after their dead mom or a God or a Colonel Sanders or whoever the fuck they're talking with. Now they know that you can hear them. What they also know is that you can't hear the voices that they hear. What that proves to them though, is not necessarily, or let's just say not just that they know what God wants, the aliens, the NSA, but they know that God, the aliens, the NSA, only wants it from them. The fact that they can hear the voice, but you can't, is proof that they're the chosen one, not you. There's no doubt that the voice is real. And that certainty is propped up by the psychotic's knowledge that they can hear what you can't. So knowledge for the psychotic is a weird fucking place to be. And it hinges on a kind of like solipsistic privacy and a relationship to certainty that's very different from the neurotic. This is all stuff that I cover in my commentaries on seminar three. Put a pin in this, hold off. I promise I'll hook it up soon. Are we good to take next steps? Where do we find ourselves? We have time for another question or two if somebody's got one. Oliver's got something cracking. I have one. Um, how does Lacan interpret anxiety when there isn't another present? So like I'm thinking about, I have friends who can't smoke weed because they get anxiety attacks just chilling in their room by themselves. Like, what does Lacan make of anxiety yeah. without another present? Man, that is so interesting, right? Because it does hinge on this question of psychosis. And because we know that one of the subclinical structures of psychosis would be like paranoia. 
But we also know that there's this debate among Lacanians about whether you can have bleed over between clinical structures. You can have the underlying clinical structure of a psychotic, but show up as a neurotic for lots of your life. But the challenge here is what do we do in a case like the one described, where it's a regular person smoking weed, presumably neurotic, but then having a fucking paranoid moment? What Lacan is going to say about the big other here is also what he's going to say about mirrors. You don't need to actually have one in the room to have the experience of being before one. So part of what we know, for instance, about the ego ideal symbolized capital I next to capital A in parens. It's in the bottom left-hand quadrant of the graph of desire. Note, I'm not talking about the ideal ego, which is the specular image. I'm talking about the ego ideal, which is an introjected understanding of the law and order of the symbolic. It's already inside you. We might refer to this as conscience. It's certainly what props up or provides material to the superego. Because the ego ideal is full of all the expectations and rules and regulations and standards for, I don't know, being a woman, being a man, all the things you have to live up to in order to meet those gendered categories, in order to satisfy the requirements. But here's the deal. Nobody is ever man enough. Nobody is ever feminine enough. And as a result, the ego always feels like they fail to live up to the ideals of society. The ego never lives up to the ego ideal. The superego rushes in as a punisher to say, look at you, you fucking failure. As a censor, why don't you get your shit together? It's that voice inside your head that says, be better, be faster, be stronger. You suck. This is proof that you suck. Look at you, you fucking mess. We all have these voices in our heads. Lacan's point is that that is a voice of the big other, of the symbolic, of society that has been introjected, brought inside, and now does the work of censorship and constraint that the symbolic on its worst days does for those it's supposed to otherwise contain and, and help give identity to. So even though this person's getting high by themselves and having a fucking paranoid moment, the big other is always there. It's always already there. By the time you can roll a joint, the big other is there inside you. It doesn't need to show up as a praying mantis, as a desirous little other. In other words, an embodiment of the big other. The big other as such is never going to walk up your driveway and knock on your door. It doesn't work like that. It's society. It's principle. It's law. It's order. Law and order aren't going to come and hit you over the head with a stick. But a cop will. A cop is a little o other that has embodied or at least been allowed to embody the authority of the big other. And that voice inside your head is also a little o other that has come to embody 
the big O others standards. So even if you're by yourself getting high and there is no praying mantis like body in the room, you can still have that paranoid moment. And I would just add this as well in answer to the question of whether there can be crossover between the clinical structures. The ego has a fundamentally paranoid structure. What else is narcissism but an attenuated form of paranoia? And here's the deal. I'm not making this shit up. This is what Lacan says. The ego is fundamentally paranoid. And you see this pronounced when the ego gives way to the narcissistic capture that it usually operates on, whether or not it has a mirror in front of it. So what I want to suggest here is that there's a continuum between neurosis and psychosis that can allow for extreme fits of anxiety for those friends who can't smoke to the point of even seeming like this is anxiety on the verge of paranoia. So I say this as in the spirit of dialectical response to what we heard about the psychotic and their experience of anxiety as a living nightmare. Now here what we're talking about is the neurotic and their experience of paranoia. A neurotic structure, anxiety, finding expression at the level of psychosis, and a psychotic structure, paranoia, finding expression at the level of neurosis. That strikes me as truer to Lacan's system. I cannot speak to this clinically. I can speak to it conceptually. And that's my job here, is to show up and help with the conceptual stuff in hopes, and this is my great hope, that you all will then take some of this and help other people. All I would want is for one person on these calls to take one element of Lacan and use it to help a patient, whatever it is, to help a friend. I don't even care. But I know that the people that are here are clinicians practicing and aspiring for the most part. And, and, and my goal is to just bring some of this as much as I can to an, an additional resource available to you. And I think the great contribution here is to know that a lot of the forms and functions that we see happening at the level of psychosis have attenuated variants in the field of neurosis. And some of the forms and functions that we see in neurotic personalities, according to Lacan, find extreme form in case of psychosis. I think that's a, that's a fairly um, uh, true statement. I see one more question here. Does anxiety unveil the omnipresent other of the symbolic for the neurotic who has sublimated the other into themselves? What the hell kind of question is this? Does anxiety unveil? Already this thing is fucked up. Already this thing is like mind warping. Does anxiety unveil? And it's in quotation marks too. David, you're an amazing fucking asshole. This is great. I love it. Does anxiety unveil the, or whoever typed that, that's the thing too. It's like it's Cody and David on the call. We don't even fucking know who, it's Cody. Cody's got the book over his face, but it's under David's name. 
you guys are a couple of amazing assholes. Okay, unveil the omnipresent other of the symbolic for the neurotic who has sublimated the other into themselves. Do you mean reveal the omnipresent other as a neurotic or does anxiety allow a neurotic subject to see the omnipresent other in this different way? Uh, more than seeing, I was thinking, that even if the uh, neurotic has forgotten the other, anxiety somehow allows it to show up. That's great. And what I like about it too, and, and I see now in some sense why you've put unveil in question marks, because it's a very Heideggerian way to spin this around the question of concealment and unconcealment, veiling and unveiling, um, closure and disclosure, covering and discovering, all these Heideggerian moves um, where he suggests that anxiety is going to give the ordinary person a brief fleeting glimpse of the truth, of the nothing that they are, and of the bullshit that is society. The problem, though, is it's so brief and so fleeting in Heidegger that we, we then get this return back to, oh, it was nothing. You recall that passage famously from Being in Time. When anxiety strikes, the neurotic is going to respond and say, oh, that was just nothing. And Heidegger's point, again, is you're exactly right. That's precisely what just showed up in your life. You just got a glimpse of it, and here you are shrugging it off. Uh, if we're going to read Lacan in this way, it does bring him into line with this tradition from Kierkegaard to Heidegger, um, a very existential phenomenological tradition in which anxiety provides access to a kind of authentic existence, as they used to put it, um, and, and produces things like um, authentic speech. Uh, but um, I don't know how much of that we can get out of Lacan here. What we do know at this point is that anxiety is going to put us on the path to something more enjoyable, something that does have a little more truth to it for the subject and the field of experience, analytic and otherwise. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. <laughs>